0: Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition, having conversations that you might not necessarily expect. Um, now, our topic today is one that, is, um, one that I'm very conscious of and, and aware of because as a middle-aged white man, um, I'm, I'm quite conscious of the advantages that, that this brings me in life. Um, and if I think back over my career, that awareness or consciousness hasn't always been with me. Um, and whether that's because of the wider kind of conversation that's happening around um, uh, equality, diversity and inclusion in the workplace or whether that's with age, I've just become more aware of it. I'm not really sure. Um, but I guess today is, is sets out their stall and they're working hard to, to change that. That awareness and that consciousness around um, around equality and diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and and it was that um, being very open about the fact that those three aspects of equality and diversity and inclusion, um, and how the three of those things linked together was a was a big part of what uh, drew me to to getting our guest on today. Um, Anyway, so let's get him on the air. So, welcome to the Emotion at Work Park. There's a Stumble already. Welcome to the Emotion at Word podcast. Mac Alonge. Hello, Mac. Hi,
1: Phil. How's it going?
0: I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Very good. Good, good. So, uh, as per usual with the Emotion at Work podcast, um, I'm going to open with a, uh, an innocuous yet unexpected question. Um, and the, the intent of these questions is to get to know our guests a little bit better without doing the kind of real classic and cliche, tell me what's your name and where do you come from type thing. So, um, Mac, my question for you, what shop or shops um, do you remember most vividly from your youth?
1: Oh, well, um, good question. Thanks. Um, I think the sh- as soon as you said that, kind of the, the shop that stood out was Woolworths. Woolworths. And I just, yeah, I kind of remember going going there after school, um, getting picnics, listening to to music. They obviously had like a really big um, CD collection. Not there was tapes at the time, actually tape collection, CD yeah. collection. As it later on um and just seeing what kind of new music was out in the charts um and i think my mum used to go to kind of the the other sections to get kind of stuff to the house and um i'd be running around the music section so, that, so that's it, kind of the standout shop for me okay
0: so is, is music is music still a big part of your life then?
1: Um, yeah, I think you know I, I listen to it quite often. Um, I think I've always got it on in the background when I'm when I'm kind of working or on my way to meetings and stuff like that. So I'd say it's quite a big part. I, love.
0: I always find it fascinating working in offices when um, you know you d- you, d- you either have the discussions about hey, was it music on or music off. Um, if yeah. there was music on, was it the radio? And if so, which radio station? And you know, was the uh, was the time shared between different radio stations? And was it okay to put your earphones in or not? And are oh, I, I remember the the the, <laughs> the lengthy discussions, almost arguments that used to be had about uh, mm. about whether the music was you know what, a whether the music was on or not, and then b w- which variety of music it was.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's quite interesting as well. You mentioned, obviously, headphones in and headphones out, and I've been kind of at various places of work in my um, my career, and there have been different attitudes to earphones in. I think there's a, a conception that if you've got your earphones in, you're not necessarily engaged in what's going on, or you know, you're, you're less likely to have conversations that, that could be um, quite important for developing certain things within the workplace.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it was um, also, I think there was a perception, sometimes accurate perception, that people would use earphones as a way of um, kind of trying to, to get either focus or concentration or just not be disturbed. So even if they weren't necessarily listening to anything, it was just uh, if I got my earphones, in, leave me alone, um, you know, kind of leave me alone to, to get
1: on my work type thing.
0: Um, so for me then, my uh, my most memorable shop. um uh, from from my youth was the post office at the bottom of um, at the bottom of my hill so where I sort live was in a quite a hilly part of Bristol and uh, I had to used to have to kind of go down the hill to get to the bus stop and stuff and there was a very nice there's there a really nice post office at the bottom of the hill and I say really nice because it had similarly an amazing pick and mix section <laughs> so I, I remember being able to go in and just pick up yeah fruit salads and blackjacks and mm. Um, the the little kind of mushroomy sort of the pink and white mushroom sweets and um the sugar covered jelly dummies and um and Whoa. stuff like that. Oh, I used to love going.
1: There. <laughs> I think it, think it says a lot about us as kids that you know stand <laughs> standout memories are to do with sweets. To
0: do with sweets. Well, you, you added music, which is you know I think a bit more credible than you. <laughs> <might>. <laughs> Mine was just sweets. Although to be fair, um, one of my first ever paid—I um, wouldn't call it a job—but um, the uh, the owners of the post office, I got to know them really well because I kept going in. And when I was about, I think I was about thirteen, <coughs> um, they asked me if I wanted to do some painting in in one of the in one of the rooms at the back of the post office, and they paid me in sweets, um, which was. <laughs> And I just do this room for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you want to we'll pay you in? Some- <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm not sure what the um, the work employment laws would say about that.
0: But- mm. yeah, child labour and all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and I, I guess that gives us a nice segue into. Um, it's what we want to talk about in terms of those, you know, those, those workplace expectations and what what would have been okay a number of years ago, and what what would be okay now. Because um, mm. I, I remember um, one, one of the most vivid memories that sticks with me when I was um, when I was a child. So I I was raised in a Christian house, and um, there were very very few non. If I look if I look back on it now, there are very few non-white people in. Um, like in the area that I lived in um, or, and or that went to the church that, um, that I grew up in. And I remember when I was, I think I must have been about 13 or 14 at school and um, somebody somebody stopped me outside the school and said, oh, can you go and find so-and-so and ask them to pop out and see me. I can't remember why they stopped me. Um, but I, I went in, I found, the, I found the individual and they said, oh, who's who asked for you? And I said, oh, I don't know. It's, there's this, it's this colored guy outside. And he, you know, described what he was wearing, and he went, and the guy was talking. He said, "He's not coloured. He's black." And I was like, "Oh, oh, oh, oh!" And, and I, I, and I felt really, um, I felt really embarrassed because I, I, I thought mm. I didn't. That, that was the word I, you know, that was kind of the word I knew to describe, um, you know, to describe somebody that was black. But the yeah, I remember the embarrassment that I felt about oh no, I've used, you have know, used the wrong word. I've said the wrong thing. I've, um, you know, I've, I've kind of embarrassed myself and or insulted them at the same yeah. time. <laughs> So yeah, lots, um, lots of change. Lots of yeah, lots of change over over time, I guess. And is that something you've experienced yeah. as well in, in the workplace? Have you experienced change over time?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I think things have changed. Um, I guess there's. I guess it's interesting as well because we're coming to a point of time now where a lot of things that were previously the case in terms of um, the workplace culture, for lack of a better word. Um, that are acceptable now that weren't acceptable then. So you know, there's a whole kind of tech industry that has ushered in this era of wearing hoodies and jeans to work on a daily basis and um, just being really casual in in the way that work is is done. Um, whereas when I entered the workplace, I remember quite vividly that you know you had to wear a suit and tie. And I think it was, it was quite recently actually that people kind of stopped wearing ties so much and um, there was a, 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 a formality in informality, I guess that was um, that we're seeing now that wasn't the case kind of 10 15 20 years ago um, so that that's changed I guess from a, a race and <clears throat> equality type um, scenario I guess we're seeing a lot more um, ethnic minorities within the workplace mm-hmm. um so that obviously brings with it its, it's own dynamics um, I guess we're seeing more more women in in leadership positions as well um obviously we have got a, a female prime minister um they're kind of you know the, the cabinet is is quite um quite gender balanced the, 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 um, in some aspects
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so there the, there is a lot more presence of um i guess other individuals other than a kind of middle-aged white men mm-hmm. um, within the workplace and within yeah. the professional environment. Um,
0: so, you, you, one of the things you said is kind of pressed a little bit of a button for me. So, I was with um, I was with a client recently, um, and I got pulled up on my standard of dress. <laughs> so, I um, I guess I'm not, not in a good way. Well, so if you get pulled up it 's never in a good way, is it um, <laughs> but it, for, for me it, it it was interesting in the um uh, d- well, yeah just the, the difference of, of views on on what makes for professional slash credible so mm. um you know it, clothes are clothes can be used as a as a credibility um, or in my in my in, in my experience slash opinion, clothes can be used in a in a in a way to try and manage and attain credibility. Um, I, my personal view is that they are an un, they are an unnecessary way of doing that. Yet, I also accept that that that, that, that is what they are. You know, because because your, you know your clothes are part of you. What you wear is you know, it, it, other people will form an impression based on what you wear um the, dis- you know, the, the, the discussion that I had with the client was around the ways that um, kind of professionalism and credibility is, um, is negotiated. Um, and, mm. you know, my, my perspective was, I think I've done enough in, in the way that I work and how I interact with other people to establish that credibility and that professionalism, that it doesn't matter what I wear yeah uh, if that's you know but ultimately you're my client so if that's what you want me to do then you know I'll conform because that's what um yeah that's the expectation that is being laid out um and and, and i guess in yeah in 2019 it, it it surprised me that that was the case mm.
1: yeah and i think it kind of um plays to this this norm that perception is everything so how you perceive somebody to be Mm. whether that's professional, whether that's unprofessional is fact. So if they look unprofessional, they're going to be unprofessional, which is an absolute nonsense. Um and it kind of links to what we're talking about in terms of equality, diversity and inclusion. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, the the quote unquote norm um of leadership in business is the white, middle aged, middle class to some extent men. Yeah. Um and that completely is at odds with um people's individual capabilities people's individual aptitudes so if we get so bogged down in appearances and bogged down in okay because um white middle class men have historically been in positions of power for the last kind of um couple hundred years or whatever it is um, we get so attached to that identity that we can't foresee anybody falling outside of that so when we are faced with people that have had a different life, life experience or come from a different gender or, or ethnicity, um, you know that kind of challenges people's assumptions on you know in terms of okay why why is it that the default position for a, a leader or a CEO or a director or whatever it is is a, a white man? Um, is that because they are genuinely better, or is it because we've not Actually, given
0: other people a chance, and is that um, kind of? Oh, there's there's lots of stuff I want to explore wrapped up into that. And there's some societal kind of norm stuff that you talk that you talked about. Mm. Um, but I, I'm also interested, and I think where I'm going to go first is in is in your personal experience. Then, so as a um, you as a, uh, I, I don't know how old you are actually, Mac. I haven't asked that question. Um but as, <laughs> <laughs> want
1: me to disclose yeah, <laughs> yeah, thirty-two.
0: Okay, so so as a as a thirty-two-year-old black man, then how how have you found having to work with those identity norms and expectations in the workplace?
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I guess. Early on in my career I I struggled with it so I was very aware that I was a black man um, as I should be Um, and I guess that awareness kind of brought with it its own issues in terms of actually not wanting to um, conform to any of the the negative stereotypes that that have traditionally and are still today attached to the identity of the black man so um you know there's there's kind of all all these things negative things that we see in the media around what black men are what black men do um and it's very narrow and very very closed in terms of telling that that story that you know black men are more than what we've been portrayed as in the media so it was kind of a, a thing where When I entered rooms, when I entered meetings, um, I was typically the only black person. Um, I was typically, so I worked in the energy industry for um, the last 10 years, and I was typically the only person that was under the age of 35. Um, And that kind of speaks to the state of the energy industry to some extent. Um, But it kind of made me a little bit apprehensive or anxious around, you know, how I was being perceived. So... I kind of made an extra effort to make sure that I was um, on top of my game. Um, I think I was was told from kind of a very early age that, you know, I have to work twice as hard um, to get half as much in in this world. And um, initially I took it as a challenge and I I took it to be something that was just the case. Um, And so I went about working twice as hard and I, I did all of my research, did kind of everything that I needed to do from an academic point of view um and actually made sure that i was able to articulate myself in a manner that i was seeing everybody else articulate themselves in and um, making sure that i was professional as, as you said before in terms of the kind of dress code or the expectations around dress code making sure that i was always kind of groomed and and well presented and well put together mm. um and, and that's not unique to, to myself as a black, a black man you know I've, I've, talk to extensive people over the years and um, I think similar things are um, or similar experiences are shared with with females who kind of um, reach positions of power within either organizations or industries so that actually you tend to conform to, to the status quo you tend to um, assimilate to your environment for I guess some of it is because of fear yeah, so you don't want to be the the one person that's different you know i think early on in education as well as the workplace we're kind of told that you know it's um it's not necessarily advantageous to be the one different person um so as much as possible we try and assimilate and we try and um make ourselves the same as as kind of everyone else
0: So w- one of the things that that I study um, is is identity, um, and and I do worry or check myself, I suppose, sometimes that I'm looking at identity through a very narrow lens, through you know, because I'm looking at it kind of through my eyes, I guess, in a way. Um, but one of the things that um, I talk about or I'm interested in is, is sort of identity with a capital I and identity with a lowercase I. So what what I mean by that or examples of what I mean by that then is, is, so if I think about lower identity as a lowercase I is sort of the, the version of me that, that would, that would show, that would be present or would show up to an interaction with a, with a client or, um, uh, that would uh, yeah, turn up to a workplace or would, um, yeah, the, the, the the I guess, the version of me that I would adapt uh, slightly to the context and the situation that I'm in. So um, uh, I guess what am I trying to say? So I, I was having a conversation with a CEO a couple of years ago, um, and we were talking about status symbols, and he was saying how, how, how he'd done a lot of work to... Um, To address cultural um, inequality by doing things like getting rid of um, executive car parking spaces, by um, removing um, dress code, by removing um, expectations on working hours, by by, by getting rid of some of these things. So I said, So do, you know, so does, have you truly got rid of those things then? So, you know, could I you know on a on a hot summer's day, could I turn up in shorts and um sunglasses and a t shirt and a pair of flip flops? And he said, Well if you're going to meet the you know, if you're going to meet the queen then you dress appropriately, wouldn't you? And I and I found that a really fascinating response to to my question because, you know, my, my question was about wearing your sunglasses and things to a, to an office, and that got then mm. compared with um, with going to meet the Queen. So, <clears throat> I, I, I guess I'm I'm using that example to talk about that that lower case I identity. You know the the things that we adapt and change depending on the context and the situation that we're in. Then there's what I would call the uppercase identity, then, which is the 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 things that we maybe the values or the beliefs that we hold the the things that we hold true to the 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 sense of you know kind of in individuality as to as to who we are um, and then i'm interested in where do those two things merge and overlap and um, and are there yeah. times where the 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 lowercase identity that we will be that will be more malleable and and a and, and will adapt and change when does that encroach too much on somebody's broader capital i identity somebody, maybe you might say personality within that possibly i suppose
2: mm-hmm.
0: um or when does one encroach too far on the other so i guess as an example was my discussion with my client recently did i was that allowing my my uppercase i identity to encroach too much on my lowercase i identity in that You know, actually, I just rocked up in what I was comfortable in, as opposed to thinking what would be most appropriate for the client, Um, or could it go Mm. by the other way? Does that make any sense? Or am I? I feel like I'm.
1: No, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think, um, I guess, one of the things that stuck out to me as you were talking was actually the the variability around the I guess the lowercase i in terms of what you change, and the uppercase i in terms of what your values are and who you are as an individual. Mm. Um, the scope of, of flexibility around those two concepts depends very much on what your starting point is. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, what who you are. So um, you obviously spoke earlier on about being a, a white man. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm a black man. So I guess what society says is the norm, quote-unquote norm, yeah. for the business environment. Is kind of very white centric, very middle 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 aged potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um. Some somewhat middle class. Um. I think when so I used to work for a big four consulting company, and their demographic, their primary demographic was very kind of private school educated and um, you know, Oxford Cambridge type um, graduates. So there was a very, the, the dominant culture there was one of privilege, one of kind of um, very middle class um, in terms of the culture, in terms of the the values to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess coming into that environment as a black man that wasn't privately educated, um, that is so far away from being middle class that it's, um, it, it then becomes very apparent in terms of um, how much of, your day-to-day interactions or your, um, things that you think about, things that you talk about, etc., mm. has to be adaptable. So you kind of develop this, um, duality in terms of not wanting to tra- change who you are intrinsically, but then also wanting to be able to have conversations around whatever the, the conversation, conversational topic was that they, yeah. um, and, and not, not wanting to feel like a complete alien. So you have to, um, you know, if, if you don't like football, perhaps, and everybody's talking about football, you want to feel included. So you, you kind of start to, um, listen out for when football conversations are happening so that you can be informed so that you don't feel like an outsider coming into these conversations. Um, and that's, that's kind of very much the, the, um, I guess the negotiability or, or flexibility that you have to have in terms of that lowercase I. Um, whereas if you're, if you're part of the dominant culture, if you're part of the the status quo, um, then you know you don't have to change it at all because that's, that's who you are. That's intrinsically linked to, you know, so if you, if you like wearing suits on a day to day basis, the culture within an organization being to wear suits isn't going to impact you at all. But, if you'd like wearing shorts and t shirts and flip flops but you have to wear suits and etc because that's the, the organizational culture then that obviously um encroaches and, and I guess that that flexibility then becomes more apparent to you.
0: Hmm I, I think that was you you articulated that better than I did, I think. So that's good. I like that. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, okay, so earlier on I said that um, there were a couple of things I wanted to pick up on. One was the kind of this some of the social, the more societal aspects, and then I said I wanted to find out a bit more about your personal experience. So can I yeah. can I just nip back to the societal stuff for a minute, if that's okay?
2: Yeah, sure.
0: Um, so part of me wonders that if this is something that I'm that you know, so if I if I put myself back in and you know back as a I don't know as a as a HR or organizational development. Or you know or, or just an individual within the workplace yeah. with this strong overlap or interplay between societal norms and expectations, workplace norms and expectations, um, whilst we can do some work to to affect change within you know within individuals or within teams or potentially within organizations as a whole, if the more societal aspects don't change. Are we doing a kind of, do we end up on a hiding to nothing, I suppose, in a way? Do we end up just wasting our effort and energy because it's never going to stick because society doesn't want to change or or won't change with it?
1: Yeah, um, interesting question. And I think um, it's kind of one of the things that I talk about with, um, you know, people that I come across on a day to day basis to say actually there's essentially a bit of a, not a misunderstanding, but a mis- mis- misconception around you know what society is, um, and I think for a lot of the time, for a large proportion of our lives, we feel that society is something that happens to us without actually taking accountability to say actually we are part of society. So mm. what our, what we allow to happen within society is generally what happens. So for a long time, and I don't want to kind of get too difficult with this because you know we'll be here forever but if we look at kind of the the political class and the ruling class mm-hmm. um, there's a I guess the, the norm historically has been that you know the the privately educated people the people that went to Eton and Oxford and Cambridge etc then get fast-tracked into government and they get fast-tracked into um, positions of, of leadership and positions of power that affect the rest of us And you only have to look at kind of what's happened with Brexit and what's happened with um, previous regimes in terms of the weapons of mass destruction, war in Iraq, Mm -hmm. um, financial crises, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of gives you an indication that actually it's it's not working. You know, the the current climate um, just doesn't work because there is one perspective that is being, um, I guess, elevated to the point of of being the norm. So Mm -hmm. as as a community and society, we need to actually um, redress that. So it's kind of part of what we're saying about um, workplace culture as well. So individuals Mm -hmm. within an organisation will determine what that organisational culture is. Um, And it's a conversation to be had to say actually, who are those individuals? Typically it's been those in quote unquote positions of power. Whereas, we kind of need to redefine that and say actually we're all in positions of power we'll, we will have the ability to impact what the the quote-unquote norm is or what the new norm is mm. um you know as as individuals we will inherit something so going into into the workplace i inherited uh, this dominant culture of um i guess <coughs> Code in terms of mm-hmm. values, corporate values, individual values, um, topics of conversation, etc., etc. Yeah. Um. But as as an individual, I have the opportunity every day to either accept or reject. So earlier in your career, perhaps when you don't know much and you're kind of all new to the working world, well, um, you're more likely to accept than you are to reject because, um, let's face it, every, everybody needs a paycheck. Everybody needs a job. Um, and you know, there's uh, the fear, whether that's um, whether that's you know, um, see what I'm looking for, whether that's perceived or actual. So yeah. the, the fear that you will lose your job if you speak up about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always look to the power of movement, like the Me Too movement, that yeah. they actually, um, you know, as a collective, we have the power to very clearly set out what is acceptable and what's not acceptable.
2: Yeah.
1: um, Whereas um, sexual harassment might have been something that was overlooked in previous generations, this generation is very clearly saying, no, we will not accept that. Mm. And a similar thing needs to happen in terms of quote-unquote societal norms to say actually it's not okay to bring your prejudices into the workplace. It's Mm. not okay to um, chant racist abuse from the sidelines of a football match. It's not okay for, for these things to happen, and the more um, the more adamantly adamant we are about rejecting those things, um, the quicker that change will come.
0: Hmm. Yeah, one, one of the uh, one of the um, examples that sort of popped into my mind was the was the sporting one, um, whether it be about um, race or whether it be about sexual orientation. Both, you know, kind of look at it from from both. Um, Ex, you know, perspectives, um, because you know the, I, I remember. I remember back in, you know, back in my youth, the, the the kick it out campaign, and when that came into, you know, when that came into being for kicking racism out of football, and then to to then still have you know, to still have that occurring today just you know, blows my mind. From a yeah, um, yeah, yeah, blows my mind. Um, I
1: think I think for me, uh, for me, it, it It doesn't necessarily blow my mind, and that that might seem like a controversial thing to say, Um, but I think for me, I've I've always known that racism has existed. Um, What's blown my mind more is the fact that actually these organisations are, uh, I guess, happy to just continue to exist without actually fundamentally changing things. So, as you said, kick it out, we set out, set up, you know, ticket, etc um and the 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 narrative around it hasn't changed much at all Mm -hmm. um so then you need to question actually the millions and millions and millions of pounds that have been spent on these campaigns and armbands and t-shirts and all of these um very tokenist gestures um what is it who's who's benefited from it because it's certainly not the, the black footballers that are continuing to be abused mm. it's certainly not the black managers and coaches that can't find jobs within the industry yep. who has actually benefited and, and what tangible change has been achieved
0: hmm and is that something that um it's maybe a um yeah. So, and that that tangible change aspect, then, is that something? Because because wh- when I hear you talk about that, I could hear you know I could hear the passion in your voice for um, for it. So, is, is that something that you look for in the work that you do? Then, in terms of being able to to I, I don't know if evidence is the right um, is the right word, but to be able to demonstrate that, um, you know that tangible change for the, some of the work that you do with uh, individuals or organisations.
1: Yes, definitely. So I guess one of the things that we or one of the analogies that I always use is to say, actually, if you're aiming to lose weight, you need to have a very clear idea of what your starting point is. Nobody says, OK, I'm going to lose weight um, and then never measures it and never kind of looks at the scales and um, never does comparisons to see where we are today versus where we where we want to be in the next month or, or so. Um, and that's kind of one of the big criticisms I have in terms of um, people that have been doing diversity and inclusion for a really long time. So, it's like, okay, what are the tangible metrics around this? How how are you things that you've changed? Um, so as an organisation, we um, we are da- very data driven, so KPIs mm. are around everything, so around diversity, around equality, around inclusion, um, and the implications that that has. has It's not just about diversity and inclusion in a silo it's more about okay what are the other ways that we can tie this to business outcomes so if a business as most businesses do have a profitability target or a revenue target we very clearly tie that in with some of the stuff that that needs to be achieved on equality diversity and inclusion um so it's it's more about um growing the scope of this business case to say actually equality diversity and inclusion is the right thing to do, generally, philosophically, but it also is the right thing to do from a business point of view. So, in terms of making the organisations more innovative, more productive, more profitable, when everybody feels included, and you know, tying it back to kind of the work that you do around mm-hmm. emotions within the workplace. Yeah. Um. If you, if you feel included, if you feel well represented, if you feel like there are no barriers to your um your ability to progress, even within an organisation or within an industry. Why wouldn't you feel more motivated why wouldn't you give your best to, to that organization or to to your career um, but what we're seeing now is a lot of waste from um, organizations and I guess from individuals within those organizations to say actually if I know that my manager's not going to promote me because he only promotes white middle class men or or anything any other preference um, as an individual that doesn't fit what he's looking for why would you you know why would you give 100% of your energy to that situation. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, broadly, that's that's what we do in terms of kind of um, providing data sets for organisations, and I guess individuals within those organisations, to say, this is the very clear business case as to why, as an organisation, we need to tackle diversity and inclusion. And we've seen it very recently in terms of gender pay gaps and um, the, the work that needs to be done in that aspect. Um, but then also t- kind of drawn alongside organizations to say, this is how you get from A to B. Because what we've seen historically is that companies have, um, I guess, done done a lot around um, unconscious bias training. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, things like token re so going out and hiring a, a black female as, as an executive. Yeah. Um, just because, you know, you tick two boxes um, as opposed to actually doing the right thing. So so who are the highest performers? Um, do you have people within your organization that should be promoted based on the data rather than kind of what companies have done historically? Um, so within my career, I've, I've hired extensively over the years and um, there was no kind of um, better way of hiring. So the hiring process is, very much based on personal biases or societal biases but you know societal biases are things such as assuming that people that went to oxford and cambridge are more able to do a job than people that went to the university of nottingham or the university of manchester or bristol or wherever mm-hmm. it is. um say so, you know oxford and cambridge are the elite and therefore everybody that comes from oxford and cambridge is intrinsically better than you know everyone else which is so far from
2: the
0: truth. It, it's ridiculous. Mm. So, if, if I can pop back to the um, you know, what you were talking about earlier on with the I on just now about things like token hires or, or if, if that if that manager uh, only ever seems to appoint um, somebody from a particular um, demographic, so uh, white middle-aged men, for example. Um could it be, or, or do you find there's a better question? Do you find that that is um, that is unconscious or kind of out of awareness, or is that deliberate and in awareness, or is it a mix of the two what, what do yeah what do you find in, in the work that you do
1: Yeah, so it, it, I guess it would be unfair of me to say that it's all deliberate mm. um, and similarly, it would be very naive of me to say that it's all unconscious. Okay. Um, I think it's a it's a spectrum. In some cases, it's it's very conscious. Some cases, it's, it's very unconscious. Um, and I think even, you know, talking about my experiences as a hiring manager, you know, I've made assumptions on people's abilities based on what's in front of me, which is typically a CV. Mm. Um, that in itself is a very quite redundant and um, unscientific process because. We know that a lot of people lie on their CVs. A lot of people lie on their LinkedIn profiles. Um, so, you know, to to take that approach, we're kind of signing up to um, signing up to biases to, to, to a certain extent. Say mm. actually, every, everybody that, that works for X company previously is better than everybody else that works for B company previously. <laughs> Um, which in itself is, is a bias. So um, it would be very naive to assume that actually there is no bias within any of these processes, because every single one of these processes is um, kind of undertaken on the back of biases. Um, in terms of, I guess, the the future. In terms of okay. you know, how do you get past how how do you get past that? Because there's this one thing to acknowledge: the bias, um, whether that previously unconscious or, um, or deliberate. It's actually what are the ways that we can remove bias from this process. So, you know, as, as I mentioned before, um, unconscious bias training is, is, is something that organisations do quite um, quite often, quite frequently. Um, but there's, there's no evidence out there to say that it actually works. So,
2: okay.
1: I guess the, the question that I have to, to some of these organisations is you know, what is what's a better approach? Is it, um, you know, doing training every so often to remind people of the biases or the opportunities for bias to slip into some of these decision-making processes? Or is it to actually implement a new way of doing things that removes the possibility for people to apply bias to these processes? But and I, sorry, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Sorry, go on
0: no uh, uh, so I, I, I think that links me into where I was going to go next then so um so your question was you know do you do what you've done or do you look into new ways of of trying to to remove or uh, and or reduce the bias then so what would what would some of those new ways be
1: yeah um so we promote uh, so we've developed a system that essentially that removes bias from the recruitment process so um anonymous um, application processes so Within any um, any vacancy that you're hiring for, you need to determine what are the key attributes that make somebody successful in that um, that role. Typically, it's nothing to do with what a person's name is, what what gender they are, what school mm-hmm. they are educated in, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's more around the aptitude. So we've developed an aptitude-based system that allows companies to measure the aptitudes for specific um, specific specific roles. Um, within that, we um, separate the admins of the recruitment process from the assessment. So, there's no need for the assessor to determine who gets through, for example. So, when you do an interview, um, as long as there's a, a robust framework around how the interview is conducted, what questions are asked, and what kind of scoring is assigned to individual responses, you're um, then it, it, it able to kind of build up more of a holistic picture um, when you take into account somebody's aptitude that you've test, tested um, independently. So I guess in today's world, a lot of companies look at the, the interview process as well as um, what's called a, a CV filter. So looking at somebody's credentials or I guess their their claimed credentials mm. um, and making a decision off the back of that in addition to you know how they performed in an interview. Um, and, and I guess our approach is to make that more aptitude-based, to make that actually what can you, what can individuals demonstrate around their abilities. So if you need somebody that can code websites, test their ability to code websites. And so, so that that's kind of I guess that more aptitude-based recruitment approach is one of the things that we um, we suggest and promote. Um, other approaches in terms of uh, managing internal networks to make sure that people feel that their voice is heard, um, having a more data-driven and aptitude-driven promotion, um, promotion and performance management framework, as well as also providing a, a more robust framework within which to pay people. So if people are have some transparency in terms of how they're paid, how bonuses are paid, then you can kind of start to solve some of the issues that have cropped up around the, the gender pay gap.
0: So is there a is there a risk then that, because I, I, I saw so I, I don't I, um, do I want to get really kind of nerdy and geeky into how, <laughs> how the aptitudes are decided because I guess part of me thinks is there, a, is there a risk then that any of those biases could, that biases still could manifest themselves in the aptitudes that um are being assessed or tested
1: against yeah yeah there, there, there are um, and that's just by nature of um you know the the makeup of organizations. so when you design as an individual, if I was to design an office space, it would have everything that I want in the office space yeah, okay, um then if I was to take on perhaps a a person who has a disability. And we were to collaboratively design that space, it would reflect both of our requirements in terms of, you know, what that office space needed to have. So
2: um,
1: essentially with, with what we do from a technological point of view, we don't just provide systems and then kind of leave people to it. There has to be a relationship there. There has to be some challenge in terms of, okay, what is it that this data is telling you or what should you be doing on the back of this data? So it's not enough to have data. It's not enough to have metrics. You also need some robust challenge in there to say, look, this is what you need to do better. This is what you're doing okay. Um, so a lot of what we do is around around challenge. So I guess there's two, two fundamental aspects to, to how we operate. The first is um, data and tech. The second is consultancy, so providing more of a context to organisations to say, look, this is what you should be looking to do, um, these are some of the ways that you can kind of leverage what you have um, in order to get to a better position either in the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, whatever the timescale is.
0: Um, um what, what do you think is, is getting in the way? then of of these you know of of creating real change in in some you know some of these areas whether it be a right and I suppose we haven't really talked about the links between equality and diversity and inclusion so maybe we'll come back to that in a moment but um from your experience what do you find is is getting in the way or or stopping you know real sustainable or sustained change happening around you know the the uh, the aspects of equality and or diversity and or inclusion
1: yeah um that's, that's a really good question um i think, I think for me it kind of boils down to a privilege and the uh, i guess a lack of empathy um so to tackle the the lack of empathy um point mm. a little bit more, it's around the fact that we have we we only have our our own personal um experiences to go off in any meaningful way. Um, and until we have conversations with people that come from a different background, a different life experience, we're never going to understand, never going to start to understand, let alone fully understanding um, what the status quo means for them, what the status quo means for um, different communities and different demographics. So I think there's um, currently quite a siloed approach to to living, you know. Um, in in essence, the I guess there's there's a bit of a, a barrier, and you kind of talked about it a little bit before in terms of the identity um, question. So looking at kind of who we are um, as individuals, um, sometimes when we get into a work environment, or sometimes when we get into a professional environment, we kind of leave our human at the door and take on these corporate values that are so far removed from kind of who we are as individuals. So I've seen people do and say things in a, in a work environment that, you know, kind of kind of make you sit up and think, actually, do you, do you gen, genuinely, genuinely believe this or are you saying it because that's what you feel is expected of you as a representative of, of this organisation? Um, and I think for me, we need to we need to marry those two things so so mm-hmm. being a you know being a cooler person being a professional um, shouldn't mean that you have to leave your your human at the door um, and I mentioned before about kind of the the me Too campaign and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that if we kind of look into the 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 issues that happened around that you know there, there were a lot of people that were complicit um, with kind of these these acts or or patterns of sexual discrimination Mm -hmm. that were kind of keeping up the, not keeping up, I guess keeping up is perhaps the wrong word, but maybe facilitating, um, whether willingly or or otherwise, um, facilitating these patterns of abuse. Um, and in essence, that is, um, I, I guess as a society, we've, we've fostered this culture of, um, the corporate being more important than the human side of things. So, um, I guess from your perspective also in terms of what you deal with
2: yeah.
1: with emotions at work, it's about actually when you when you kind of isolate this those two aspects, that's when you kind of start to have all of these implications in terms of, of mental health and um stresses and the anxieties that are attached to work because you don't necessarily feel that you can be yourself Mm. Um so that's that's kind of where the, the lack of empathy comes from because we we've seen people in positions of power and um I guess I don't I don't want to get kind of too political, but looking at kind of what's going on from a, a Brexit point of view, you've got people that are middle class and, and have experienced privilege all their life making decisions in this kind of Westminster bubble and not really a, thinking or B, understanding what the implications are for the quote unquote average person. So, not everybody has a trust fund. Not everybody has thousands and thousands in their bank that they can rely upon. So, even if the, you know, the exchange rate does plummet and, and the pound becomes worthless, that they don't have, um, estates and acres and farms and, you know, assets coming out of their eyeballs that they can, they can sell and divest. Um there are people that are on the breadline now, you know, or below the breadline now, that if Brexit goes goes wrong are gonna be in an even worse situation. Mm. So we're not talking about access to offshore funds and, and that kind of thing, that you know, these people kind of live in, in this bubble of privilege that doesn't allow them to actually understand what the implications of, of these decisions are. And I think to kind of bring it back to the point that we we're kind of talking about yeah. in terms of the workplace you know because we, we don't have to kind of um look to westminster as kind of decisions that we we make on a day-to-day basis around who gets hired and who gets a pay rise and who gets um you know given this opportunity to to do x y and z within the workplace um and we actually need to start to have a little bit more empathy around um around the, the narrative of inclusion. So so understanding the implications of your day-to-day decisions and, and the potential that that could adversely or positively impact how somebody else feels, you know? So um, you might see it as, as a complete business business decision that you need to be cold and hard about. But again, even if you have to take a certain decision the way that that's communicated or, you know, the, the visibility or transparency around those decisions actually helps people to feel like they are included and helps people to feel like they they are of value within the workplace. Does that make sense? Thought yeah, thought yeah, yeah, no, well. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: no it does. No it does. But, and, um, so when you talked about lack of empathy, um, and and the you know just kind of just just not uh, not understanding or, or awareness of it from someone else's perspective. I remember having and and, and uh, this might seem like a bit of a I, I worry uh, I might I'm, I'm worried or anxious that this sounds like a trivial example, but in my head it was relevant. the 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 revelation that um, women on LinkedIn get um, approached for dates mm-hmm. slash um, you know,
1: har-
0: har- yeah, well, so, yeah. Uh, but there's, there's a spectrum. So some, you know, so for some it's mm. harassment where they get dick pics and stuff like that. And, and again, that's just like, that, that, you know, to, to, I used the phrase once already that blew my mind to think that, you know, via one social media, granted this, you know, that was the, that experience was more on Twitter than on, um, uh, than on LinkedIn. But the idea that women would just get unsolicited photos of male genitalia that blew my mind but then also that you know women will get connection requests that overtly re- refer to their attractiveness or femininity or those sorts of things as, as a way to in, you know, to, as a way to instill a connection through what is a professional network I, you know I, I had no idea that would happen um You know whether yeah, and that's because that's you know that's that that's a reflection of my own experience. My own experience is that you know that's not something that I do. It's not something that I experience. Therefore, it doesn't happen. And then when I found out Mm. that it did, again, that just made me think, wow, the the experiences that I have, (coughs) um, in you know on on this particular point are are so different to what in this example women have. Yeah, and and then that makes me. A mixture of ashamed of you know men and angry at men at the se- you know kind of a, at the same time, um, and then
1: yeah, know, I think yeah, go to...
0: well, so uh, and then that also then takes me on to um, something that is sometimes called what about me, where um, you know, if you talk about. Um, if you look to the crime statistics, the vast majority of you know physical and sexual assaults against women come from men and then and then there'll be elements of you uh, people will rightly say that also women abuse men and and yes they do but the the um you know the scale of of that is is very small in comparison to men that will um that will abuse women um yeah, I don't know where I don't know where I'm going with that. If I'm honest, but it, it, there yeah.
2: are, I, think, I, I guess, I the, yeah.
0: Go
1: on. I think I think the point that you raised about kind of the, the LinkedIn abuse um, really kind of hit, hit home for me as well. Like, I I've really, I've, I guess, I'm privileged to have a, a number of professional females that, that I talk to um, in both a personal and professional capacity, and you know, I've been screenshotted messages of you know people on LinkedIn reaching out. Saying you know you've got wonderful eyes and, and stuff like that and it's like okay what what does that have to do with anything professional you know if we're having a conversation about about work why does the beauty or lack thereof of my eyes um, have any bearing whatsoever um, and I, I guess that is again a, a lack of empathy because you know in the same situation I think I think on, on a gender perspective we're quite privileged in that everybody kind of has um, somebody of another gender that they can relate to or somebody that they've got a personal attachment with. So um, everybody has a mother, everybody typically has a father, has a whether they're involved or not. Um, so we can kind of relate to to the gender conversation a little bit more. And I guess in the, in the case of kind of sexual harassment and those kind of things, um, we really need to start thinking and questioning ourselves along the lines of you know if that was my daughter how would I feel if that was my mother how would I feel if that was my sister how would I feel Mm -hmm. I think when you start to have those conversations to say actually this (laughs) you need to understand that the person that you're messaging is somebody's sister is somebody's daughter is potentially somebody's mother so you know the same I guess the, the same expectation you would have around how somebody should or would treat your own mother or sister or, or daughter
2: yep. is
1: the same way that you should approach people of, of, um, of an, an opposite gender um, so that's kind of the, the conversation that we need to have and it, it comes back to what we we're saying about the separation of the professional from the per- personal mm. um, and in essence we kind of need to find a happy medium between the both to say actually what is what what values we we have in our professional life actually have quite a, uh, a large bearing on the values that we have in our personal lives um, the second thing that you mentioned is kind of what about are
2: we
1: mm. um, and yeah this is, I guess it's a it's a difficult one because um, in in what we do we don't focus on a specific um, diversity characteristic that we don't focus mm-hmm. on um gender or ethnicity or disability we we tackle things holistically to say actually if there are barriers within a process for the same um females yep yeah. it probably be the case that there are also barriers for disabled also barriers for people of a different ethnicity also barriers for people of a different sexuality so it's about addressing all of them kind of holistically to say look there are barriers let's remove them and I guess in it, the the danger if you don't do that is you get into kind of a hierarchical type debate to say actually gender issues are more important than ethnicity issues, which are more important than disability issues, which are more important and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, what, one of the critiques of amongst the many critiques I have of the government. But in their approach to... Tackling the um, gender pay gap, um, it the way that they've done it, it doesn't allow for conversations around intersectionality to say actually, if generally women are paid less than men, ethnic minority women are paid less to, e- even more or less. Or less. Yeah. It's not proper correct English. Yeah, but, that's right. Um, I mean. Disproportionately less than than men, um, and within kind of the the gender. It, you know if we were to look at gender as um as a spectrum to say okay in in all of, in the bucket of of kind of females and how females are paid mm-hmm. um, what are the differences inside that um demographic and then you start looking at disabilities and sexualities and ethnicities to say okay on that spectrum um ethnic minority women are paid disproportionately less than um white women, or um even to look at socioeconomic background to say that working class um, working class ethnic minority women are paid significantly less than um, upper class um, white women for example, so there needs to be a holistic approach because if there isn't you miss the point to
0: some extent mm. and so you and so you, the the current approach do you think that limits the ability to do that? 'cause it's just purely focused on that single characteristic or that single variable of of gender, you know, and not not delving deeper into some of the other aspects or facets of that, whether that be sexual orientation or class or um ethnicity and so on.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it even wider than that, um, it misses the point entirely and it kind of suggests that the only issue that women have within the workplace is the fact that they get paid less. Yes. which is an absolute nonsense because we have um, things like discrimination and things like sexual harassment and, and those kind of issues to say actually we've got a lot more work to do than just paying people the right amount. Um, so it's entirely possible for companies to have a an equal gender pay gap but for women to still be treated disproportionately worse than men within that organisation. Yeah. Um, so by the government chasing this this gender pay equality, um, you're still not solving some of the fundamental issues that have, I guess, wider implications in terms of um, job satisfaction and and how people feel when they enter the workplace on a day-to-day basis.
0: One of the questions that I prepared before um, beforehand was around myths and misconceptions. So it's a, it's a favorite question of mine that I ask a, a number of different guests that I get on the podcast. And I think you've given me a nice segue into it by, you know, by talking about the, you know, one of the potential misconceptions or the, you know, one of the bigger issues with the gender pay gap is it hides other stuff that's happening and going on. So are there any other, or what other um, myths or misconceptions around equality and or, inclusion, and or diversity, um, would you like us to kind of address or put to bed?
1: Yeah, I think um, one of my biggest irritants um, in this space is the the misconception that um, unconscious bias training works. And there's loads and loads of companies that, you know, unconscious bias training is the one and only thing that they do around diversity and inclusion. Um, And, you know, we've turned down work in the past because organizations have wanted us to do unconscious bias training. And our response to them is you can't just do unconscious bias training and expect all of your issues around diversity and inclusion to go away. Um, So that's kind of one one of the the biggest things that irritates me in this space. I guess one of the second, so the, the second um, misconception I would say is yep. that um, diversity and inclusion is a HR issue. Um, so that's one of the things that we, we hear a lot to mm-hmm. say, okay, um, individuals within an organization don't need to do anything on diversity and inclusion because the HR person picks that up or, you know, if there's, there's a diversity and inclusion manager, it's their role to look at diversity and inclusion. Um, when actually it impacts all of us, and actually it's a, a conversation that we will need to have. We will need to be aware of um, the things that we can we do or can do on a day-to-day basis that either improve or um, worsen somebody's um, ability to function within the workplace. Um, I guess other misconceptions would probably be around token rehires. So, just having a, a black person within the leadership team doesn't mean that your um, your organisation is diverse or inclusive. Um, I guess I spoke earlier on of, of my experience with, with a big four consulting firm. And, you know, one of the things that they they did was to have um, I guess ethnic minorities within their, uh, their leadership team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you when you speak to these kind of ethnic minorities um it becomes very apparent very quickly that actually the only um the only thing that that's kind of different about them is the skin skin color so they've had all of the same privilege that, that yes. you know white middle class men have had um, they've had the exact same educational experience, they've had the exact same um, even, even professional experience in terms of where mm-hmm. they've been and what they've done um, and again that limits you from a diversity point of view so it, diversity isn't so much about kind of um, one attribute it's it's not about you know, just gender or just, just ethnicity mm-hmm. but it's about actual um Things are bit deep, isn't that so life experience and um even, even looking at kind of political leanings, political opinions, political perspectives to say, look, if everybody thinks a certain way, you limit yourself as an organization to the outcomes that you can have or the solutions that you can develop. Mm. Um so I think that that's probably it in terms yeah. of kind of misconceptions mis- um,
0: one of the things that um, one of the things I like to do for for the listener then is to um, give sort of, is to give them access to further reading and stuff like that so if you've got any I've got a couple that I already know of um, Mac, but if you've got any particular research or um, things that you sort of cite especially to do with the effectiveness of unconscious bias training um, that I could put in the show notes that sit alongside the podcast then um, if there's anything in particular you suggest I include so that we can, because one of the things that I, I, if I put myself in my listener's shoes, so this is, you know, I, I try to take different perspectives. Um, then one of the things I want to be able to do is to equip them with some stuff that they can then go away and, and use. So if there are any, yeah, any particular, um, yeah, resources or references or, or things that people can use to support them with any of those misconceptions that you've just talked about, whether it be um, effectiveness on conscious bias training, about um, diversity inclusion being a HR issue, and then token hires. Um, if there's anything, any resources that you would recommend, then I'll send them over to me after we finish, and I'll um, I'll make sure I put them in the show notes as well, if that's okay. I'll do that. Fab. Thank you. Um. All right, so I think I want to wrap it up and put it together then, if that's all right, Mac. If that's okay. Um, are there any um, beyond what we've talked about already? Are there any other suggestions that you'd have for, for our listeners, um, if they wanted to make some progress with equality and or diversity and or inclusion? Any other suggestions that you'd have for them to say these are some of the things that you know to consider by the reading or trying or, or doing or um, adopting.
1: Yeah, so I think for me, um, I would always challenge individuals to um, to kind of think about the the type of organisation that they want to work within. essentially. Um, we spoke a little bit earlier on about culture and the the ability that we have as individuals to define what the the social norm is. Um, we also have that ability within our organisations to define what they, the cultural norm is within that organization. Um so so one of the things that I would say is to, to challenge, you know, challenge as much as possible if you feel that there are things within your organization that um aren't correct from a diversity and inclusion point of view, challenge. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I'm kind of always happy to, to go in and speak to individuals or speak to organizations around what can be done to um to improve and improve what people are doing around diversity and inclusion. Um, and also to, to facilitate conversations that to some extent aren't being had so the the starting point is always conversations to say actually why do we do things the way that we do things do we do and um, just because we've always done them that way or do we do them because they are the right thing to do um in terms of kind of reading research i'll say you know there's there's Stuff that we put on our website, and um, I guess engage with others on social media because we're always um, putting out kind of our thoughts and our insights, um, and happy to have conversations around around these these kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, th- I think um, I guess probably linked to kind of what you do as well. I guess individuals have to take good care of themselves, um, I guess emotionally uh, and mentally, um, because some of these conversations are quite draining. Um, so I've, I've spoken to people extensively that have worked in kind of DNI um, roles, and they've had to take breaks and have to kind of um, refocus and take some time away because there is a, in, in certain aspects, certain um, industries perhaps, there's kind of a sense of hopelessness that that people get bogged down with. Um, so I'd say actually taking care of yourself is is one of the the key ways that you can ensure that you've got the energy to actually make make a difference and make changes because it's not going to be kind of a quick fix. You know, as, as a society, we've we've got serious issues when it comes to equality, diversity, and inclusion, um, and organisations are are just a reflection of that. Um, so yeah, I think just just kind of being equipped to to call things out as in when we see them mm. um, and I'd say also don't don't limit yourself to one protective characteristic to say you know as as a black man, it would be very easy for me to just get bogged down in conversations about black people in the workplace, yeah, yeah, yeah. um but actually i I need to understand that any. Any injustice to to one person is an injustice to, to all of us
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and actually seeing the opportunities to to challenge all injustice rather than uh, being wedded to to my experience
0: okay I think uh, leave, I think leaving it on challenging all injustice I think that's a that's a really good place to leave it okay all right um So you mentioned about um, kind of people getting in touch with you then, so we've got the equalgroup.com, which is your website, and if people wanted to find you on social media, what's the best way for them to do that, what should they go looking for?
1: Yeah, so the the Equal Group on social media is also um, LinkedIn um, and Twitter, so Twitter's at the Equal Group.
0: Fab, lovely, and I'll I'll put links to all of those in the show notes as well.
1: Alright then Mac, is there anything
0: else then? Anything else that you're thinking, feeling or want to say before I put it together and close?
1: Thinking, feeling or want to say? So um, there's, I guess one of my favourite quotes is from uh, Martin Luther King. And it says that our lives begin to end at the moment. We stop talking about things that matter.
2: Um,
1: so that's that's one of the things that I've always kind of held on to to say actually, what is the value of our lives? Um, and we need to ensure that we leave a better legacy for the next generation than the one that was left to us.
0: Wonderful. All right, then, Matt. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, it's been a really interesting and enjoyable conversation. So, um, and yeah, I'll make sure we put links to links in the show notes to all of the um, all of the kind of research and data that we talked about, and also so people can find you if they want to carry on the conversation as well. And all that leads me to do then is say, "Mac, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, edited and presented by Phil Wilcox. For more information, why not visit our website, emotionatwork.co.uk. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not join the community at community.emotionatwork.co.uk where you'll find other resources such as videos, blogs, articles, research, plus all the previous podcasts. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for listening.